Real quick, before we get into the show, I wanted to share a new service called Getita that Ken and I have been using that has made us over $10,000 in Amazon reimbursements. The service requires no monthly subscription, and Getita collects a small percentage of the money they recover for you. It takes less than five minutes to set up and works on all Amazon marketplaces. Go to getita.com, G-E-T-I-D-A, and enter promo code FTM400. That's FTM for firing the man 400 to get your first $400 in reimbursements commission free. How much money does Amazon owe you? Welcome everyone to the Firing the Man podcast, a show for anyone who wants to be their own boss. If you sit in a cubicle every day and know you are capable of more, then join us. This show will help you build a business and grow your passive income streams in just a few short hours per day. And now your hosts, serial entrepreneurs, David Schomer and Ken Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to the Firing the Man podcast. On today's episode, we have the privilege to interview Dick Weibrow. Dick is an Amazon best-selling author of humorous supernatural fiction. Dick is a Canadian, and his novels are mainly set in the United States where he grew up. A former stand-up comedian, Weibrow is a humor writer who crafts thrillers that incorporate elements of suspense, horror, mystery, science fiction, and fantasy. His stuff has been heard on the radio by millions and seen on TV in 213 countries. In his spare time, Dick likes to write autobiographies in the third person. Dick loves to talk about creativity, humor, writing, werewolves, and love of a great book and narcolepsy. Welcome to the show, Dick. And welcome from New Zealand, where it's summer and it's 22 degrees, which probably makes very little sense to folks in the U.S. because I I was there too, obviously. So we're going to start out this with a trick to make you sound really smart. So when you hear Celsius or Fahrenheit, don't use this for cooking. But to give you kind of an idea about what 22 means in Fahrenheit, because I still think of Fahrenheit. I still think of an, an imperial. Here we go. Ready? Double the number at 30. That's basically the simple, simple rule. It's not perfect, but it gives you an idea of conditions. So if it's 22 right now, double that 44 at 30, 74. So right now it's about 74 degrees here in New Zealand, sunny New Zealand. That's I like awesome. it. I like Look at that. I, if nothing else, we took something home. Awesome. So to start off the episode, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your path to becoming a best-selling author? Right, that was basically, and you read some of the there, it was it was my path to avoid proper work. <laughs> you know, I'd always been somebody who wrote because when I, I, my father was a New Zealander, he ended up going to the U.S. in the late 60s because I guess back then they just thought they could, you know, get off the plane smoking, right? And come up there, knock on the door, people let you in, uh, but they have and had a quarter system. And they're like, oh, we're filled up on New Zealanders, go to Canada, they'll take anybody. So he ended up going up to Canada, met my mother, but always wanted to be in the U.S. And so when I was nine years old, we moved down to the U.S. And so here I was, a chubby, red-haired boy with a Canadian accent in the New Jersey school system. So I had zero friends. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's where some of the writing started, I think, because I just started creating creating friends on paper and creating worlds that I felt more comfortable with. And actually, there was an amazing moment that happened in that uh, New Jersey school system that actually clicked me over to humor. But I always had been a bit of a fan of humor. Then, you know, moved all the way through the Midwest and everything with my father. At the time, I always thought that, oh, cool, we're moving to a new place. It's very exciting. And I found out only later as an adult, it was because my father kept getting fired. <laughs> just the nature of the industry. That he was in. And uh, I was like, well, uh, we're moving to a new place. Boy, our parents are 
really look tense. Oh, it must be because of the move. <laughs> and so uh, we spent most of our time up eventually landing in, in Edina, Minnesota, just outside of uh, Minneapolis. And then from there, like I said, I was doing a lot of the writing stuff. And it was the sort of thing where this is back pre-internet, uh, back in the old days. And so you would send out your short stories to these various places and you would put in there an SASC, self-addressed stamp envelope, so that when you put there and put the stamp on there, put in the envelope, send your story, send it out. That way, when the rejection came back, you were paying for it. That's, <laughs> that's all that did. <laughs> but, but it would take months and months and months. And so in my head, this moment made sense. So it took so long to try and get something published. Why don't I write something and then go on stage? Because this made sense to me. Because then that meant that that night I was published. And so it wasn't a great desire to get up and do stand-up comedy. It was just so that I could write something. It was stories, not short stories like I was sending out to these various places, but it was stories because I was a big fan of storytelling comedy. And so I would write these little stories and get up on stage and each night I was getting published. And that turned into a stand-up writing initially, a stand-up writing career. Not right away, obviously, because when I first started doing it, I was awful. <laughs> I, I remember five minutes, man. Five, it's like there, there is a bending of time and space when you're on on stage and no one's laughing that five minutes is a long time but 22 seconds of that i got a laugh i got uh, some chuckles out of people and so i in this kind of became a, a bit of sort of a seed of what i do today it, you just take the thing that's working get rid of everything else that isn't and that has actually really served me over the years of creativity and other places as well so I had 22 seconds <laughs> I had 22 seconds and I built that up into a minute five minutes 10 minutes and I eventually had myself 45 minutes I could do uh, I could do a headlining gig and then I eventually got into radio transferred that because the market in stand-up changed a bit uh, where people fewer and fewer people were coming out to clubs because stand-up was all over television it was shown popping up everywhere on, on USA Today on AD everything. So I got into radio, did that for about a dozen years, transferred off and I got into television. And of course, you know, you go from radio, I want to do TV. Let me do one of the biggest networks on the planet. I happened to be in Atlanta at the time because I had just done a rock show in Atlanta. I was like, let me go try work for a CNN. Of course, they're not going to hire me. I don't have any TV experience. Ah, they hired me. <laughs> that was, why would they do that? I think sometimes when you come into a scenario where you're like, I can do this. I, I know I can, even though you don't feel that way, you should have put on airs. Oh, of course, I can do it. Not arrogance, just confident. And they were like, well, obviously he can do it. He take a look at him. He knows he knows what he's doing. And I had no idea. And I did that with CNN for uh, about 10 years. Um, then 11 years ago, we moved to New Zealand. And I did seven years here doing a 7 o'clock p.m. comedy news live program. So the comedy stuff really came in hand, came in handy. And then in December, our show got canceled, even though the ratings were very high. They, it record ratings. It didn't matter because television as a paradigm has changed. Ratings don't matter like they used to. And so as of December 1st, this past year, I am now full-time writing. Excellent. So what a crazy journey so far and yeah. well-traveled all around the U.S., New Zealand, um, Canada, stand-up comedy, which I think takes a lot of guts to get up and do stand-up comedy. It sounds like it, it honed your writing ability. It got your stage fright, speaking, public, it, it honed a lot of your skills, going to radio, going to TV. I mean, pretty incredible. And so now you're landed in, you've landed in writing. And so for anybody on our YouTube channel, you can see in the, in the background there, uh, the book covers that we're getting ready to talk about are hanging up on, on Dick's wall. And so let's talk about um, the most recent book series, Wolfware series. I believe there's four of them. And it, maybe can you give like a 30 second brief on each one and kind of share with the with the listeners? I can't. And, and trust me when I say this, I'm not a big monster book guy. I never set out to write, to write a monster book. But basically, 
contains about this wolf who gets bitten by this infected man out in the woods. The next day, he wakes up human. <laughs> a six foot seven French Canadian, by the way, because I thought that was funny. But when the moon comes out, when the full moon comes out, he turns into a werewolf. But depending on the moon phase, he'll turn into a dog. And then, so the story, basically, the arc is basically about Cain trying to find out the secret behind what transformed him, trying to find that secret, find this guy who bit him so he can transform back into a human, or rather back into a wolf, uh, because he wants to be able to run through the woods and be naked once again like he used to. I mean, he could do that as a human, but he'd probably get incarcerated. And he's up in Canada, a very good chance he'd probably get frostbite. I'm very unfortunate for us. So this whole story is about Cain trying to find this with help from this woman named Imelda. The whole story is about them trying to find out how to transform him back into a wolf. I like it. And so so the whole story is broken down into four books. Number one is a bestseller on Amazon right now. Number two was recently released. Number three is either released or will release soon. Is that true? Three has been released. It just came out at the end of December. Three is out just a few weeks now. And four is coming soon. Four is coming out in, in April, and about a third of the way done with that. The fifth one will be coming out shortly after that, because I've got readers saying, like, I don't want to wait four whole months. It's like, that's fast. <laughs> you know, take a look at me. I wrote Game of Thrones. He's taken years to finish that series. It's been years since he's published a book. I'm doing, I did three books in one year, but they want it, so I'm getting it out. Uh, what's fun, too, is uh, the audiobooks come out here. Uh, first one comes out uh, on January 16th, so that's really exciting for me, because I wrote a picture because I was still doing the television gig 10 hours a week so i was getting up at 4 30 in the morning and writing this series in my little in one quarter because this looks nice and fancy behind me yeah. because my wife made all this because she has design <laughs> talent but i'm in a garage i'm in a two-car garage there's carpeting on the floor because that's kind of what they do in new zealand um housing shortage i guess so they turn this into a room so my domain is one quarter of a carpeted garage the rest of this, that's all hers. She this is all, <laughs> all this little in fact I got a gate that's around me. That's to prevent the dog from getting in. But I feel like I'm a bit of a cage. I created all that here and it's exciting for me as I like I say, I did this in Auckland, New Zealand, four or five o'clock in the morning, and now I've got these two Hollywood actors that are putting their voice and their talent into this for the audiobook. I can't wait to hear it. Oh, I can't wait. It's gonna be really thrilling and probably emotional to hear these characters come to life. So the audiobooks are released and you had them. They're narrated by... So yeah, the audiobook, the first one's coming out January 16th. The next one comes out in February. The third one will come out shortly after that. Uh, we're negotiating the fourth and the fifth books right now. So uh, yeah, that should all be coming forward. So can we dig into your creative process and, and what, when you're sitting down to write a book, is there anything that you're doing beforehand or do you have any rituals or routines that helps you get into that focus where you can go in and do some some good writing? I think, and keeping this in this thought of, you know, we're all entrepreneurs here, right? I really feel, and I, I assume you might agree, is if you don't have the passion for that thing, if you don't have the drive that you feel like you have to do that thing, you ain't going to make it. Or at least I wouldn't make it. Because like I said, I, I've got a sleep disorder, yet I was getting my butt out of bed at 3.30 in the morning to do this. If I didn't have the drive to keep doing that and keep plugging away, if I was sort of like writing in a prescription. Like I'd written other stuff in the past. I wrote two thirds of a trilogy that I felt would make it in the market. I should have read the market. Let's see if this works. Unfortunately, it did kind of well. I got optioned by this group called Circle of Confusion, who later ended up doing The Walking Dead. So I had some real interest in that. Fortunately, I say, because that told me, oh, I must be on the right track. But in writing that, it was it was sort of like this fire investigator. It was a thriller series with a bit of humor in there, but not remotely like I'm doing now. 
But that was more of a, a trudge to go do that because I wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't, I didn't feel like that was really coming for me. And so my process is thankfully I have to write these books in this style. I really love this genre that I'm writing it. And so that gives me that sort of that push to get up and do this at four o'clock in the morning. And then the, the process just comes down to making sure I do something every day. Stephen King says that he writes six pages a day. Like we're talking before, you know, George R.R. R. Martin, he might do six lines a year. I don't really know. I don't know what his process might be. But I really feel as though if, if you've got your own small business and you are working for the man, the way that you can keep feeling okay about that, because a lot of this is about what's in our head. A lot of this is about our mindset. For my part, I feel I've got to do something every day because when I don't write one day, the next day I feel awful. I get depressed. So sometimes I might sit down and there's days because I'm tired or I'm busy or just can't put it together. There's some days where I feel like I just can't. I just do it anyhow. It might be just one sentence, but even one sentence, I, I get that that sort of emotional buzz because I've moved the needle a little bit, just doing something a little bit each day. So when I wake up the next day, it's like I'm further along today than I was the day before. And that helps. That helps my head a bit. And But sometimes when I sit down and write that one sentence when I'm struggling, it turns into a paragraph. Sometimes that paragraph turns into a page and sometimes it turns into a template. So I think my process is sitting down on the days that it's flowing. Right. Let's keep going. On the days that it's really hard, I just do it anyhow because I know it's good for my head. If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below. I really like that. And I think there's a ton of lessons that people, you know, whether they're writing or, or running their own business or, or really anything in life, I, I think there's a lot of lessons that they can take out, out of that response. And so you had mentioned a sleep disorder. Can we yeah. can we get into that? What What is it? How does that impact writing? I might call it a sleep disorder, I suppose, but I guess the medical community calls it a waking disorder, which is troublesome. <laughs> what, what do those words even mean? Uh, but basically, narcolepsy means that I'm sleepy all the time. One, I heard somebody once describe narcolepsy as stay up for 30 hours, not going to work. Now come home, make dinner, and I'll sit down and chat with your spouse. So I don't know what your perspective is. I only know my own. I just know that I'm always very tired. And But I do see it as something that, that actually works in my favor. Not initially, because when I first got diagnosed, it was funny. I wasn't even going in to get diagnosed. Uh, my ex-wife at the time, remarried. My ex-wife, she went in and she was convinced that she had narcolepsy. And she sat down with the doctor to tell him her, her story. And I was there leaning in, in the doorway. And I was just, you know, as, as we do, I was just piping in and offering, fill in the blanks where necessary. And I swear to you guys, he sat across for me and said, like, I don't think you have narcolepsy, but I think he might. And something about the way I was presenting or the way I spoke or whatever it was. And then so the following week I went in and they, they put me in that bed and they had the monitors, the recording equipment, put all the suckers on my face. I slept through the night while they woke me up every hour to quiz me on a couple of things and had me go back to sleep, which only made the narcolepsy worse. It may not let me 
sleep at all. But uh, I did that. And then, yeah, I've discovered that, I, you know, they diagnosed me with narcolepsy. And it was actually, that was in itself a positive because I now had a bit of a name for the demon. And I've heard other people say this. Now that I sort of know what that sort of demon is, is this narcolepsy, which draining my energy. And for the first start of it, I was like, you know, woe is me. This is something that, you know, I've got this thing and I, why, why do I have this? Other people don't. But then I started to look at it the other direction because I saw some of the writing I was doing was sort of different than many other people. It was, it was kind of gonzo some of the stuff I write about. And I realized, and to this day really believe this, that my narcolepsy is a superpower when it comes to my writing. And, and how I sort of frame that is like, you know, when you're lying down going to sleep, you're lying down in bed and you're just just about to drift off to sleep and you get some amazing idea or, or some great solution for something. You think, I got to write that down. That's just really, really good. And you wake up the next morning, you don't remember it. And you didn't write it down. <laughs> that sort of dream state, that creative state, I'm there 80, 85% of the day. And so whereas I saw that as a negative and even right now, you know, I've got to push through this and, and be able to focus. I do find that I think a lot of the creativity I have comes because I'm in that crazy little dream state most of the day. What message would you give to other people dealing with narcolepsy or say it be a, a learning disability or, or anything? I love how you, you've, you've named it and you've called it a superpower. But what, what lessons, whether it be narcolepsy or something else, or what message would you send to people dealing with something like this? There are plenty of other people that have more difficult conditions than I have. Absolutely. I know plenty of people that have any ADHD or even dyslexia and that they're writers and they have tools they can use. I just think that as best as you can, there's so many things, because especially as like an independent business person, you're sort of, it's you and maybe maybe your family just against the world. If you've got support from people, that's great. There's so many things that sort of chip away at your resolve. And so for me, it was this sort of thing that I couldn't have this as well within me also taking away from me. So I needed to get a bridle on it and ride this thing somehow. And so maybe I'm fooling myself. I don't know, but I do feel empowered by doing it this way. So if you do have something I don't want to put it this this way because I don't want to judge anybody, but I never want to use my narcolepsy as an excuse not to do what I love or what I want to do. So I think if you're feeling that this becomes your excuse not to do it, try and turn it around. Don't let, don't give yourself excuses because there's plenty of people out there, not to be negative, there's plenty of people out there that are just overjoyed if you fail. Your boss would love to see you not succeed because he loves you working for him. So you just kind of push against that. You keep pushing against that. And if you can find some way to take what you have, who knows, you know, when it comes to, like in my case with an narcolepsy, if, if, if I can use this to create stories, and my stories are a bit nuts, I admit when I'm creating them, they're pretty off the rails in the editing they kind of they, they kind of get more honed into something that in the shape of a story but if you can use it in some way instead of being something that detracts from you i think it really helps your head yeah no that's powerful and i really like that mindset of of kind of using that as a superpower i want to pivot into your writing so you're an expert writer you've been you've been writing for a while dave and i are in e-commerce a lot of listeners are in e-commerce and so we write a lot of copy for sales we're in physical products business so we we kind of explain what our products are how it's going to help the shoppers why they need our products all that as you're writing and your writing process, how do you like craft your journey and kind of grab the reader and take them through that to evoke emotion or something that you kind of carry them through? How do you do that? I, th I think when it comes to the writing, that's a bit different than maybe a pitch. It's kind of what you're talking about in a way. If you're talking about selling a product, because I sell, because my stuff, they're products. These, these books behind me, they're product. When I'm putting an ad out or if I'm putting out a social media post, people are so busy, you've got to grab them fast. There's got to be something. And, you know, we all know the call to action and we know the attention and ADA and all that stuff. But you've got to grab people quick because people are going to blaze by it. And when I was in television, we got pitched people all the time. 
And if they had this big old block of like, oh, bring me on because I got this, this, and this. And if their sort of big sell line is near the end, there's a good chance we never made it. If you don't grab us within the first couple of sentences somewhere, I'm not reading the rest of it. So I think when it comes to social media posts or ads, these sort of things, you got to have something out of the gate that grabs people's attention. It might be a bit of a video, but I've done plenty of social media videos. I've done them on TikTok. I've done them on uh, Instagram. I've done them on Facebook. And I can track the analytics. You take a look. Those analytics will crush your soul. (laughs) You put out that minute and take a look at everybody bailed at seven seconds. And then your head goes, okay, I got to grab them that seven seconds. What can I do? So I've got one. I came up with this idea. From what I understand, at least within Podium Audio, people haven't done this before. I ended up going, because I've got the audiobook coming out on on the 16th uh, for Kane. I ended up interviewing my narrators. I spoke to Tim Campbell, who plays Kane, and I ended up speaking to Marie McCann, who plays Imelda. And so I took what they were saying about the stories and the characters and turned those into short little social media pieces. And I noticed that one of the lines that Tim said was that really stung with people, was stuck with people, was he goes like, not all French Canadian werewolves are the same. When you hear that line, you go, what's he going to say next? What in the world is he talking about? And so that's what I mean. So paying attention to some of those analytics, Now, a good number of my videos, when I've got both of them speaking, they start with that line because I know I've got them at least hooked when they first see that line to carry through. So I think when it comes to anything with e-commerce, any sort of pitches, and we all know this, you got to grab them quick. The writing side of it is a bit different because I grab them and then move on. I still have a bit of a sale with that, especially when people are first starting the book, if they're pulling off like Kindle Unlimited or something, I've got to grab them early on. So I do what a lot of people do for the most part. I start sort of midway into the action and I sort of go back, but it's the same sort of thing. You got to grab people quick. There's so much stuff that is out there trying to compete for their attention. And anytime you might have put the most beautiful Instagram video together, if you don't nab their attention early, it's just not going to deliver like you want it to. A follow-up, a quick follow-up question, because you have so much experience in TV and radio as well. I know on radio, did you guys do a lot of commercials and ads for, for local radio? Yeah, especially in the beginning, because that becomes part of it. You you do your shift, then you get done, you, you're stacked. You're stacked <laughs> from the sales guys. And then, but you know, if you create a bit of a personality, then you get requested. You get paid a little bit more for that. But yeah, I ended up doing commercials for definitely for, for radio for some time. Were there, was there any of them that like jumped out at you as like what you were talking about, the hook, like grabbing the attention? Any of them that jumped out at you as like go-tos or, or a lot of ads we're using? It's tough because, uh, you know, I'm a humor writer and a number of people ask me, well, how do I write humor? And that's, that's almost impossible to answer. I mean, there are answers for that. Yeah. But I think it's just, it goes back a little bit sometimes to just grabbing attention. And one that sticks out was in your neck of the woods when I was working for KESM in Eldorado Springs, Missouri. And all I did was I just took the telephone number and I messed around with it. And it was just like, I guess the request from the, the person who owned the business, they just wanted people to know the telephone number. And that was kind of like for the 30 second ad, that was the, the guiding sort of spirit of it. So I had this sort of manic thing I wrote out with a telephone number and I just, the whole thing was just about, okay, it starts with a six. So six is good because, and I did this whole thing of like, let's get to the end of the telephone number using these goofy mnemonics, right? This idea of like, make it a bit of a game all the way through. And they went gangbusters with that. In fact, they ran that ad for like, I left the station after a year. They ran that ad for five years later. And it was just something a bit different. It just was, I think the energy helped because I inject a lot of energy into it. But just this idea of rather than saying, hey, buy my stuff or come to our restaurant, 
the whole ad was about memorize this telephone number for this incredible restaurant. And it worked because when you start to hear the first one, you kind of like, where is this about to go? And people hung into it. It's difficult with radio. There's sort of a figure that was used for many years. People listen with about 20% of their attention because they're driving around and working the yard, doing whatever. And something like that, I think, grabbed that attention. I sort of made a bit of a promise, right? I made a promise at the start. Seven digit number, here's your first digit. You kind of want to hear how the other six are going to go. And so you create that from the start, that here's the arc of what this 30 seconds is going to happen. It pay attention to the end. And I think if there's some way to build transfer ideas like that into what we're doing, they, they do seem to pay off. When you create that expectation of the start, make sure you pay off, but create that expectation of the start to keep people watching. You see it on TikTok videos every now and then. Um, you can't do this style too much, but like, you know, there'll be like a little banner that says, I'm like, oh, the time I met Kim Kardashian. And you see the person going through the line. Well, let me see you meet Kim Kardashian. And then you get the yen into poster. Okay, well, that is fine. And yeah, and you're going to get all these different views, but I'm not going to trust you again. I'm not going to go back to you. So there are ways to get those views, but you got to make sure you're meeting that expectation. Like a suspense, but you got to deliver. Yeah, you got to deliver. You really do. And it doesn't have to be a, a huge delivery. All it was like when it was that telephone number one that comes to mind, all that was was just, I just cut to the seventh digit and it was fun. <laughs> That's all that was. But it worked. You got to make sure you, when you make, and it's the same thing with my writing. There is uh, sometimes implied or there's sometimes it's pretty much on the page. There's a promise to the reader. And I got to make sure I hit that expectation in some way. Or you lose them. So, Dick, what's next? Are you working on any books that you can share? I've always got ideas. <laughs> That's the hardware sometimes when you're writing. So, I've got, I'm writing book four at the moment. I'm about third of the way through. Uh, book five is coming up shortly after that. But I've got two or three competing ideas like knocking on my brain, you know, coming up from my subconscious. And so, I've got, kind of, just give it a minute, just give it a second. So, they're coming in. With the Kane series, like I said, we've got the audiobooks coming out. Fingers crossed there is some interest from the production side, either television or whatever it might be. I don't want to think too much about it, put the kibosh on it, but who knows, something might come of that. It could it could happen. So fingers crossed that something uh, raises, it raises up and makes it happen. For sure. On your, um, you've got the number one on the bestseller on Amazon. What's your experience like been selling on Amazon? Do you have a distribution service that sells on Amazon for you? Do you do all the listings? How does that work? I do all the listings for it. I do that through a lot of this through Facebook. I've got some Amazon ads and I've, it's difficult to scale the Amazon ads because at some point they just don't deliver in the same way before. And those can get quite expensive per click. A, a lot of it was just ginning up interest. When I ended up doing Kane, I ran a campaign for about 45 days before it happened. And I put together a short video. Videos are great because they capture attention. And when people watch that, you can actually retarget some of those people that watch that video. Yeah, but like like Facebook says, you can do three seconds or 10 seconds. People that watch a video for three seconds, people that watch a video for 10 seconds. If I got you watch for 10 seconds, you're interested in what was going to happen. And so from there, I could grab that core of people and then create a lookalike audience. And I don't know, you may know some of what I'm talking yep. about, create this lookalike audience from that. And then all those, all that group there, I can say, hey, listen, the book's out now. Maybe you might be interested. And that really helped launch it in the beginning. And then from there, I try to understand who these audiences were. And it's paying attention to like, you know, I took a look in my case, the also bots on the Amazon page. So people are coming from other writers. Who do they like? I can target those writers. And so it's definitely a bit of a process to it. And I'm always learning something every single day. Yeah, it it took, I mean, that thing shot up so much. So like within two weeks, Podium came knocking on my door and said, we want to turn this to an audiobook series. And they're one of the biggest out. And then about 10 days after that, another big audiobook service came out. So yeah, it really got into a wave. And you know, a lot of people talk about trying to predict the market, which I tried that many years ago and had, like I mentioned, sort of like, 
like improper success with. But right now I take a look around and maybe because it's my own algorithm on Facebook or whatever it might be, there seems to be a fair number of werewolf stories out there. So maybe who knows? Maybe I'm hitting a bit of a wave. So we'll see how things go. No, that's cool. And so it sounds like, so you've got the Amazon and then you're using Facebook ads to drive traffic over to them and you've created some lookalike audiences. It's also pretty cool that you have multiple books in the series. So like if someone, obviously if someone bought book one, they're going to be interested in book two, three, and four. So you can retarget them for future books. Yeah, that is, the the read-through rate is really good on this series. I read another series that had a pretty good read-through rate. This one is, it's somewhere up around 45%, which is mind-blowing. And I think all that comes down to, with all the marketing aside, just writing a story that catches people's attention. And like I said, making sort of that promise at the beginning. And one of the implied promises of my stories, or I just, I'll write, say it, is that good guys will always win. There's There's enough negativity out there that I promise that good guys will win in the end of the story. And in fact, I had an amazing email from this woman. It was so, this is one of the most beautiful things. A few weeks ago, this woman, she was having a hard time because her dad was kind of sick and things weren't going really well at work. And so she said to me, with all this going on, she emailed me, with all this going on, she said, I knew that at night I have a couple hours in their world. I knew whatever trouble they were getting into, they'd work their way out of it. And so it was my little island of joy that I could do. What an amazing thing. What an amazing gift that she felt that she was getting. But people tell me that I created that for somebody. That's really, really powerful. And part of that, like I said, is sort of making that promise that things will work out in the end. It might not work out how you think. It might not work out how I think, because I have no idea what these characters are doing sometimes. But in the end, things will work out. That, so that's very motivational. So does that, when you hear stories like that, does that keep you like motivated to push through when it's those tough days, like you mentioned earlier, you're having a tough time writing those kind of stories. Are those motivate, motivate you to write more books? Yeah. You take your fuel where you can, right? Because you've got plenty of detract. And, and even some of your, your frenemies are rather go, oh, I hope it does well. <laughs> I've even used those And I don't get too much into it, but I had a couple of people that I knew within my media circle when I was doing television that would have loved to see me fail, would just loved it. I I don't know what engendered that. Maybe it's because of the personality types, whatever. And there were times where I used this woman's story as something that makes me feel great and something that can power me. I use that negative stuff too, because I lay there in bed at four o'clock in the morning going, oh, I just can't get up and do it again. All I would think, I was like, boy, they would be so happy for me to say that. Those those frenemies of mine would be so happy if I didn't get up and start writing today. And so I take that negativity and turn around and think, I'm going to get up to prove them wrong. And so that is, I think you can use some of those negative people too. They can, they can be kindling for your fire. Chuck them on there and help them inspire you to prove them wrong. Absolutely. I know someone else who has <laughs> uses that as inspiration as well. Very nice. Ken, should we dive into the fire round? Yeah, let's do it. Dick, anything else we want to cover before we go into the fire round? No, man, I'm I'm all yours. You let me know where we're going. All right, let's do it. So the fire round, we take all of our guests, we run them through the ringer. It's called the fire round. It's a series of four questions and they're very simple and easy and fast. It's rapid fire. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. Yeah. What is your favorite book? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Nice. I like that one. What are your hobbies? Making my wife happy. (laughs) That's a great one. Really important. Yes, very important. What is one thing that you do not miss about working for the man? Putting all my heart and soul effort and health into somebody else's business. I mean, now I put it into my own business, which I love. That's awesome. Last one. What do you think sets apart successful entrepreneurs from those who give up, fail, or never get started? We talked a little bit about this earlier. I think it's just finding that thing you have to do. Find that thing you're most passionate about. Find that thing that will, no matter how much you get drained, the tank is always going to have something in there. For my part, I feel this way. Don't sort of seek out. I think this might work. Find that thing you really have to do, really want to do, and you're always going to have the energy to keep pushing and pushing. And eventually that immovable force gets the hell out of the way. 
Excellent. Excellent advice. Absolutely. Dick, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Firing Man podcast. If people are interested in uh, purchasing any of your books, we'll be sure to put links to those in the show notes. If anyone's interested in following you and uh, any future publications, what would be the best way? Just go to the website. Uh, my name, DickYRod.com is the easiest way to find me. Awesome. And, and we'll post that in the show notes as well. Dick, thank you so much for your time today. And we're looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you both and good luck to everybody. Before you go, we wanted to share a new service that Ken and I have been using called Getita that has made us over $10,000 in Amazon reimbursements. The service requires no monthly subscription and Getita collects a small percentage of the money they recover for you. It takes less than five minutes to set up and works on all Amazon marketplaces. Go to getita.com, G-E-T-I-D-A dot com and enter promo code FTM400. That's FTM for Firing the Man 400 to get your first $400 in reimbursements commission free. How much money does Amazon owe you?